He waited until everybody was gone. His wife and her family, the pastor and the scattered friends had all said their goodbyes to the lifeless body of his two-year-old son. He was able to find an unlocked door to slip into the funeral parlor. As he came in, the sight of the singular white coffin against the far end of the room was chilling. Only hours ago, he had stood above the coffin with his heartbroken wife and pledged that he would never do it again. But he couldn't think about that right now. He had to rid himself of that sick, nauseous feeling in the pit of his stomach. His heart was racing as he felt like the weight of the world was on his chest. He reached down and lifted the lid. There was his son, his boy. It seemed like just yesterday that he was born. He'd gotten so big so fast. And now he was dead. He was gone forever. His cheeks were pale in the dim light of the room. As Mel reached out to touch the tender arm of his child, his hand recoiled. It was cold and hard. His fingers slightly twisted the dainty clothes on the child. He had never seen this outfit before. His wife couldn't afford such clothes. Someone must have took pity on the impoverished family and donated something for the child's burial. But instead of admiring the kindness expressed in the clothes, Mel only thought that there was no way he could take the clothes off of his dead child, no matter how much they were worth. He just couldn't do it. Then he saw the shoes, brand new little white shoes. Shoes that could bring at least a couple of bucks. Does a dead child really need shoes, he thought? Probably no one would even ever notice the next day. So in the shadowy dim light of the room, Mel reached a trembling hand down, down into the coffin, and slipped the tiny shoes from the body of his two-year-old son. With shoes in hand, he quickly made his way out of the parlor and down to the nearest saloon and slapped the little shoes on the counter and said, quote, Give me a drink. I'm dying for a drink, end quote. As the whiskey burned its way down his throat, that nauseating pain went away. The trembling in his hand subsided, and the heavy weight upon his chest lifted into a dull, numbing haze, at least for the next few hours. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. Melvin Ernest Trotter was born on May the 16th, 1870, in Orangeville, Illinois. He was one of seven children born to an alcoholic father, William, and a Bible-believing mother, Emily Jane. William Trotter's trade did not help his addiction to alcohol due to the fact that he was a bartender. It was said that he drunk just about as much as he served. As a little boy, male, as he was called, learned the family trade so that he could pour drinks when his dad was passed out on the floor. But young Mel made up his mind that he was not going to live his life in a saloon like his father. He was going to make something of himself. In 1877, 
When he was 17 years old, he left home and moved to Freeport, Illinois. It was there that he became a barber, and quite a good one. He earned a good living for himself. So much so that he had a little extra money, which he spent many nights gambling and drinking heavily. Although he was drunk most of the time, he was able to keep it together enough to hold down the job as a barber, and also to garner the attention of a young lady by the name of Lottie. When Mel wasn't drunk, he had a contagious smile and a quick Irish wit that would woo the attention of any young naive woman. He was charming and considerate when he wasn't drinking. In 1891, Mel and Lottie were married. Everything seemed like a sweet storybook ending for Lottie until she discovered the dark secret that Mel desperately tried to keep from her while they were engaged, his drinking. By the time she discovered the horrifying truth, it was too late. Mel could no longer stay sober enough to work at the barbershop. He tried selling insurance for a while, but that only lasted a few weeks. Don't get the idea that Mel was indifferent to his behavior. He wasn't. He hated what he was doing to his wife and his marriage. Each time he would go on a binge, he would come home weeping and begging his wife's forgiveness, telling her time and time again that he would never drink another drop. And Lottie tried to help him. She forgave him. She gave him another chance time and time again. Friends tried to step in and help, but each time it was only a matter of a few days before he would be out on another drunken spree. It was about this time that Lottie gave birth to their little boy. Mel was a father now. Lottie couldn't bear the thought of life going on as usual now with the baby in the family. So with the help of some friends, they were able to move away from the city some 11 miles. This would put them far enough from the bars and the gambling houses that Mel could not easily go on a binge. And to Lottie's surprise, it worked. Mel stayed sober. The Trotter household started to enjoy some amount of normalcy. Mel found steady work out near the house. They were even able to afford a horse and buggy to get around. Lottie kept a close eye on her husband and prayed for him incessantly. And for all she knew, God was answering her prayers. But what she didn't know is that the demons that haunted the heart of Mel Trotter didn't vanish. They were just simply hidden. One winter night, after visiting some friends, Mrs. Trotter went inside to tuck the baby into bed. And after Mel was long in coming in from the stable, she began to worry. She went outside to find the horse and buggy gone, along with her husband. All that was left were a set of wagon wheel tracks in the snow heading towards town. Mel arrived in town at the saloon and parked the horse and buggy out back and struck a deal for bar credit for the value of the rig. Mel entered the bar with a shout, quote, drinks are on me. Everybody have something to drink. Drink up the horse, end quote. Hours later, he staggered his way home the 11 miles in the snow, greeting his wife with promise after promise never to touch another drop. After another promise and another move and another fresh start, the drunken sprees came again and again. Now Mel was staying away from home for days at a time. Once, after a 10-day drunken fog, Mel sobered up enough to come home. He opened the door of his home to find his wife heaving with tears while she held the lifeless body of their two-year-old son in her arms. The only thought running through the heartbroken mind of Mel was, I'm a murderer. Later, as Lottie stood with Mel over the little white coffin that held the cold body of their dead son, 
She once again pleaded with him to stop the madness of his drinking. She begged him to promise to her that he would never take another drink. With tears streaming down his face, and with every earnest intention from the depths of his soul, he said that he would never touch another drop. But only a few hours later, he slipped into the funeral parlor, took the shoes off of his dead child's feet, and gave them to the bartender for a few more glasses of whiskey. A few hours later, after the first tinges of sobriety started to sweep over his mind, Mel knew that it was over. He had sunk to the lowest of the low. He was the reason that his son lay dead in that casket. In his mind, he was nothing more than a worthless, drunken bum, and it was time to put an end to his miserable life. He somehow found his way onto an empty box car, and on January 19, 1897, he ended up in Chicago, Illinois. That sickening craving of his body for liquor had awakened over the long trip. He made his way downtown in the bitterly cold wind, finding his way to the Clark Street Saloon, where he put up his own shoes, his hat, and his coat for a couple more glasses of whiskey. And in a few hours, he was thrown out onto the street. He was freezing. His bare feet were stinging as he walked across the snow. Finally, the thought crossed his mind. Lake Michigan was just a few blocks away. All he could think of was jumping into that lake and ending it all. He just wanted it to be over. He couldn't take it anymore. Enough was enough. But his path to Lake Michigan led him past Old Van Buren Street, where was the Pacific Garden Mission. The Old Lighthouse, as it was often called, was established as a homeless shelter in 1877 by Colonel George Clark and his wife Sarah. The building was previously known as the Pacific Beer Garden. When Colonel Clark approached Evangelist D.L. Moody as to what to name the building, he suggested that they keep the name of the former occupant and just drop the word beer. For years it had stood as a beacon of hope and help for the homeless on the streets of Chicago. About ten years earlier, a Chicago White Sox outfielder by the name of Billy Sunday had been converted in that very same mission. This particular night, in 1897, Tom Mackey, an ex-jockey and former faro dealer, himself a recent convert, was standing his post on the street in front of the mission door. It was so bitterly cold that night that no one would have argued with him if he had just stepped inside to warm up a little bit. Besides, no one in their right mind would be out in these blizzard conditions. But something within Tom kept saying, just wait a little longer. You may not be able to do a whole lot for the Lord, but you can wait out here and look for somebody. Sure enough, the ex-jockey saw a staggering figure come out from the shadows. He placed his hand on his shoulder and with a few kind words just led Mel into the mission. The room was packed with men, men with stories just like Mel's. Tom led him over to an empty chair by the chimney and leaned him up against the wall. That night, the superintendent of the Pacific Garden Mission, Harry Monroe, was leading the worship service. He had seen Tom Mackey bring the huddled man in through the mission doors, and he breathed a silent prayer to God, quote, Oh God, save that poor boy. End quote. Moments later, the slumbering male began to stir. The last thing he remembered, he was on his way to jump into Lake Michigan. And now, he was in a religious service. With these conscious thoughts came the memory of that little white coffin and his dead son. He 
could almost hear the pleadings of his wife again. Then something the preacher said arrested his attention. Quote, I was 27 years old when I wandered into this mission, end quote. You see, the story of Harry Monroe was not much different than that of Mel Trotter. Helpless and penniless, he found his way into the self-same mission years earlier. Maybe it was the fact that Harry's story was so similar to his own. Maybe it was the fact that Harry was now the superintendent of the mission that was once his last hope. Maybe it was simply the fact that Mel was 27 just like Harry had been when he first arrived at the place. Whatever it was, something captured the attention of Trotter. It brought a sobriety that he had not known in quite some time, and Mel hung on every word. At the close of the message, Mr. Monroe said, quote, Jesus loves you and so do I. Put up your hand for prayer and let God know you want to make room for him in your heart, end quote. At that, Mel raised his hand, rose to his feet, and fumbled forward to the altar. Harry knelt down beside him and shared again the story of God's love in Jesus Christ, how that Christ died for his sins, and that by repentance and faith in Jesus, God will forgive his sin. In that moment, Mel cried out for God's mercy and forgiveness, and God reached down and took a black and dead heart of sin cleansed it with Christ's blood, and made it alive. You see, Mel did die that night, but not in the depths of Lake Michigan. That night, the old Mel died in the depths of God's redeeming love. That moment was not only occupied by a new saving life imparted to Mel Trotter, but at the selfsame time, the chains of addiction to alcohol were broken forever. Never again would Mel Trotter taste another drop of alcohol. In his autobiography, Trotter said of this moment, quote, There is no question in my mind that the greatest day I ever lived was the 19th day of January, 1897, when the Lord Jesus came into my life and saved me from my sin. The old things passed away so thoroughly that I have never once wanted the things which dominated my life, end quote. Mel Trotter slowly began to put his life back together. He started working as a barber again and spent his evenings down at the mission. It wasn't long before he was able to send for his wife to come and be with him there in Chicago. For the first time since she married Mel, she felt happy and secure. Mel started playing the guitar and singing songs during the worship services. It wasn't long before he and Harry Monroe were going to supporting churches and representing the mission. Whenever he had a moment, He was out and about in the city streets of Chicago looking for drunks to tell them there's hope in Jesus Christ and inviting them to believe on Jesus. In 1900, under the recommendation of Harry Monroe, Mel Trotter became the director of the Grand Rapids Rescue Mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Located in the down-and-out red-light district of the city, almost immediately people began to be saved under the ministry of Trotter. Trotter had a good business sense, as well as a hard-nosed determination. He preached and sung in the services, as well as handled the day-to-day necessities of managing such a ministry. On one occasion, he had the crowd sing the hymn more about Jesus while he tossed out the hooligans into the street that were interrupting the service. He also had a heart for those broken by sin. Mel led Herb Silloway, who happened to be a drunken barber himself, to the Lord. 
But for Silloway, the pull of addiction did not break as easily. He fell and got drunk six times in a four-week period. As a result, he tried to drown himself. Trotter found him at the jail, still wet from his suicide attempt. Mel just stood in front of him and wept like a baby. After a moment, Silloway said, quote, My God, man, I believe you love me, end quote. Herb replied, quote, Yes, Herb, I love you like I love my own soul, end quote. Silloway eventually became Trotter's assistant at the mission. During his 40 years as director of the Grand Rapids Rescue Mission, he saw scores of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. He started a mission Sunday school that had an attendance of three to 500 children who were often fed and clothed as well as hearing the gospel story. By 1913, the mission held 23 meetings a week and the building was in constant use 24 hours a day, providing food, clothing, and lodging. Trotter preached in prison services and held Bible classes and street meetings. He preached to the troops during World War I. There are some estimates that suggest that 16,000 soldiers came to Christ in those meetings. He preached alongside Billy Sunday in crusades all over the country. Take it from God's book. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you today that uh, God keeps books like I used to think what he did when I was a boy. I used to think that every good thing I did would be put out and every bad thing I did would be put out. And then when I got ready to die, they'd add up the good ones and add up the bad ones and subtract the difference. And if I'd done more evil than good, I'd go to heaven. And if I did more good, uh, more evil and good, I'd perish. And if I did it the other way, I'd go to heaven and so on. Well, now, I know that isn't so. And yet, I tell you, God keeps books. God knows you. And God knows even the thought and the intent of the heart. Now, if that is so, there's nothing but eternal punishment ahead of me. You see, but there's hope. There's hope in this text. I even, I am he that blotted out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I'll not remember your sin. You see, it's a commercial term. I'm in debt, and he paid my debt. It's a chemical term, like a ninky eradicator, and he blotted them out. You see, judgment has gone ahead. My, my, that's a comfort to me. In God's book, yes, but thank God the whole thing's been blotted out. In 1939, Trotter suffered a severe heart attack in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and he died in his summer cottage near Holland, Michigan in 1940. At his funeral, some of Trotter's close friends shared stories that reflected what kind of man he was. One recalled that he would pray with an alcoholic, quote, then stand him up on his feet and say, now go home and get the wife and kitties and come down to the mission tonight. Then as they parted, Trotter would slip a dollar or a silver dollar into the poor drunkard's hand. I heard one of those men say, as he stood outside the mission door after just such a parting, I will die before I spend this dollar on booze, end quote. On January 19th, 1897, Mel Trotter was looking for death, a death that would end his miserable existence. But the truth is, Mel was already dead. As far as God was concerned, he was dead, dead in his sin, dead in his rebellion, dead in his lawlessness before God. But on that January night, while he was looking for death, he found life, new life, resurrection life, 
life that is found only in one place. For Jesus said, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Bonnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ForgottenPodcast. Forgotten is also available on various podcasting apps, such as iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Downcast. Be sure to stop into iTunes and leave a review. And as always... Thanks for listening.